Greetings, and welcome to Broken Boxes Podcast. In this episode, we hear recurring host and artist Chinupa Hanskaluger in conversation with Castles, a transgender artist who makes their own body the material and protagonist of their performances. Castles' art contemplates the histories of LGBTQI plus violence, representation, struggle, and survival. For Castles, performance is a form of social sculpture, drawing from the idea that bodies are formed in relation to forces and power and social expectations. Castles' work investigates historical context to examine the present moment. In the conversation, Castles speaks to recent and landmark projects, including Monument Push, a multi-pronged experiential work and reaction to trans violence, and In Plain Sight, a national activation responding to policed migration created in collaboration with dozens of artists across the nation. They speak to the larger ideas that shape their practice, including how their work explores the violence, resilience, strength, and vulnerability of the body. They unpack the ethos behind their collaboration with other community members, how the audience becomes archive in their practice, and the importance of restructuring systems of care in large projects to actively dismantle the notion that those directly impacted should shoulder the burden alone. They see a desperate need to uplift complexity and productive disagreement to move us forward collectively and share how they exercise this communication model as an educator. Castles reminds us of the potential of art, that within the space of making, our agency cannot be taken. Castles ends the conversations reading an excerpt from a powerful essay by James Baldwin's writing regarding the artist's responsibility to drive to the heart of every answer and expose the question that the answer hides. Hello. Hello, hello, what's up? Oh, I'm oh. so good at this. I just bonked the, the mic. Awesome. Yeah. Hello. I was gonna bonk the mic at some point. That's why the mic is this. How are you doing? I'm good. How are you? I'm well, thank you. Yeah. You you know, life is weird and shifting and I have no idea what's going to happen, but I'm just kind of rolling with it. You know, that's life. That's life. (laughs) That's life. That's life. life. The Mm -hmm. payment for the whole thing is death. It's amazing. It's amazing. It's I, I like I was like reading this song. Thich Nhat Han book, and he talks about like that Buddhist concept of no life, no death, mm. you know, and 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 he uses the example of a cloud, how it was once just water sucked up from the earth, and this like kind of this disbelief in a life cycle, you know, that everything is just constantly moving. Uh, yeah, like that. Yeah, no, no life, no death. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I I invested a lot in the life part, so I'm like, I better get that death at the end. That's right. <laughs> That's true. It's got to stop at some point. Right? I'm like, yes. <laughs> I found solace in that, in that dirt nap. I'm like, oh. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> no, I hear you. I hear you. Are well, you in so, New York City? I am. I'm in Brooklyn. In Brooklyn. Cool. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. I've been like teaching like, uh, a lot, which is new for me. I've never done that. Have you ever taught full time? I've never taught. You've never taught? No, no. I've had some great teacher. 
they they keep saying that i'm i yeah. i i have a a mental block in my head that it is um i positioned it in a place of a of a retirement program for artists that was my you know, that was my I, I don't thought. think i don't think you're far off on that actually you know i didn't think that that was necessarily true but you know now that i'm doing it i'm like oh this is like so all encompassing it makes it very hard to continue your practice like to- really hard totally but i'm also i'm i'm like there, it feels like a gift, you know, like, I'm like, Mm -hmm. Oh, I'm not, I'm not ready yet for that, for that phase to like, Mm. uh, influence and encourage the, the future, you know? Mm. Mm. Um, cause I think there is, it's all encompassing, but it's also you, you, you take it home with you, you know, you're like, all right, now I've got all of these, uh, um, people like looking up to you and, kind of figure out and you're guiding them in certain ways, but just like just saying you can, you know? Yeah. 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 I'm not ready for that. I'm not ready for that responsibility. I'm doing the best I can with children. I'm like, let's see how they turn out before I start teaching your, (laughs) your kids. (laughs) I hear you. I hear you. Yeah. It's really cool though. Like it's, it's interesting to see, you know, so many, like just to learn from different like generational perspectives and just like cultural backgrounds. And, um, yeah, there was a young person yesterday who covered themselves in gelatin and then used a hairdryer to set it and then like peeled off their own skin and ate it. Wow. Wow. <laughs> I was like, I like this for my Wednesday. Yeah, <laughs> totally. Totally. This is good. This is good. <laughs> peeled it off and ate it. Did they yeah, rip? when she did it at first, I was like, is this an accident? And then I was like, oh, no, no, she's doing this. <laughs> like, it was really disturbing, but kind of incredible. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, I think there's something to be said about um, commodification of skin, right? Like mm-hmm. the the consumption of it um, in a way. So auto consumption, auto cannibalism. I'm like, that sounds mm-hmm. <laughs> sustainable. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right, exactly. It's a good model. <laughs> Let's float that at the next G20. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, totally. <laughs> so much skin being wasted. <laughs> that everybody's covered with like Dorito powder just to flavor. Yeah. <laughs> cool ranch. <laughs> oh my God. Hey, I wanted to say I saw your show, um, your your painting show, and I thought it was really, really beautiful. Oh, so congratulations on that. Yeah, I really enjoyed it. Um, I thought the writing that surrounded it was also really beautiful and, yeah. and, um, and situated it, you know, it's like, it's galleries are weird because they really like take things out of context, right? There's like white boxes. Um, so it was really, it was like, not, I want to like helpful is not the right word, but it was like really grounding to, um, to receive the words and to like re recontextualize the work through your lens. You know, mm-hmm. I really, mm-hmm. I appreciated that a lot. Yeah. Totally. And they, Thank you. And they and they look dope too. So yeah, yeah. I I had fun. I'm still doing it. I'm still painting. Like I was mm. literally painting late last night and got up this morning, had coffee, did a little uh, did a little research on you also, uh, and mm. and did some painting. So nice. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm. It's a pleasure, you know, to to see you again. <laughs> <laughs> And I don't know, there, it's funny, this, like, um, podcasting is, uh, is, uh, 
these interviews are as much a benefit to myself as I am like hooking up Ginge because it's the closest thing that I have to like uh, uh, social life. So it's mm. pretty, it's pretty nice. You know, I enjoy mm. it and it's, it gives me purpose and reason to like reach out to folks and talk to people and see what's what. Cause I'm, I'm here in Glorietta. I'm, you know, we live rurally. So whenever I'm home, I, I'm like, I don't even want to go get groceries. I'm like, what could we make mm. with what we have here? You know? Uh-huh. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so, mm. But it's how often, how often are you home versus on the road? Are you like away a lot, or do you get to do you get to be there a lot? Um, the last year was rough with all of mm. that because you know, as you as you know, you like program for like two years out. So mm. last year we had committed to things before the pandemic for mm. last year, and then everything that the pandemic kicked back and postponed also opened simultaneously. So we were on the road for oh, like. God. I mean, almost eight months, I would say, of the wow. of the year. And it was all broken wow. up. So we'd be home for like a week and then go yeah. do another thing and then be home for, you know, a few days. Yeah. Um, but we're we're navigating that space and trying to um I think I think it was a an anomalous year last year mm. with with mm. all of the things. So we're trying to do less better, <laughs> you know. Good. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. I understand. Yeah. <laughs> I do. Hello. How have you been? Uh, I, I've seen some of the work that you've been doing lately, but I am also interested in where you're at right now. And I would love to talk a little bit more about, about teaching and this new kind of life experience going into that. Like, where are you? Where are you teaching at? I'm teaching at Pr- the Pratt Institute in Brooklyn, New York. Awesome. Yeah. And I'm teaching in um, the sculpture and integrated practices department. So um, integrated practices is kind of like a um, a hybrid practices. So everything from like social practice to um, performance art, all things weird that kind of bleed through the definitions of other sorts of labels. So that's my happy place. Um, and, and sculpture is interesting because of course I do make sculpture, but I'm not classically trained as a sculpture in any capacity, really. Um, probably shouldn't say that out loud, but it's true. (laughs) Um, but it's been, so it's been interesting to, yeah, to like, to, to work, like to work with young people around, like to think about it, to, to bring in the way that I approach the medium versus like the historical canon of it, you know? Um, so it's been fun. I've been uh, issuing a lot of sort of really conceptual exercises and just trying to grow their imaginations because they have so many incredible formal training opportunities at the school where you can get into like deep into metal work or plastics or whatever it is that you want, ceramics. Um, and so I, I, I tend to give them like more open um, prompts that just get them using their imaginations because a lot of them have been really programmed to be like to just make replications or, or they just doesn't have, and haven't had a chance to like stretch, you know, at all yet. So it's been interesting to, to watch, watch that development happen quite quickly, actually, like even in the only, the one year I've been doing it, you know, just to see how, how much they run with things is, is pretty cool. Hmm. Well, providing the right prompt, I think, I think everybody is charged, but, um, through academia, through these like canons, as you're saying of, of education and formalism, 
all of the prompts, like everybody has the sensation that the, all the ideas are done, right? Like somebody's explored this or, you know, this is, you know, uh, uh, it reminds me of, you know, but Mm -hmm. as educator and providing the right prompt to explore, um, and this is, is this in sculpture or is this in, in like the overall, uh, class department? Yeah, it's in, it's, 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 it's kind of in both, you know, um, it's been interesting too, because like I am really heavily dyslexic Mm. and I had a really sort of scarring experience in school when I was young. Like I just had a terrible time in school. And so I realized upon showing up for this job that I actually still had a lot of that baggage, you know, Mm. and, um, and, and I'm such a body person. So like prior to moving into the ivory tower, I've run my own, you know, training business, personal training, like working with bodies. I've literally worked on thousands of people's body, people's bodies over the years. And I love working with people's bodies. It's like, um, it's such a, unlike art, which is kind of abstract and you don't really know what it does or if it does, you know, when you spend an hour with someone and you can get them out of pain or you can get them moving more freely, you know, there's something that feels very satisfying about that. Um, but I, I think like my approach to teaching in an institution is really like um, trying to balance out that hierarchy that knowledge is something that exists in our brains, hmm. you know, because I very much believe in the knowledge of the body and the somatic intelligence of the body. And so, you know, I have my master's students right now coming in and like meditating with me for an hour before we like even talk about anything. So it's like anything we're going to talk about or theorize about or have a sort of intellectual rigorous engagement with we have to do equal part in a sort of embodied practice Mm. you know like it has i really yeah that's kind of the approach that i'm that feels more authentic to making it more my own as opposed to me kind of doing somebody else's program so to speak yeah no that totally makes sense and practice i mean the the line that separates theory and practice is um the theory oftentimes, I mean, even when you mentioned going to the show and seeing the paintings and reading the, the, the writing about it, like getting into that mindset and the theory of it, uh, does it match the the practice and what actually comes out of that conceptual space, you know? Um, right. And the, oftentimes there's dissidence because there isn't a value in the, in the practice part, you know? That's right. And I think especially when it comes to, you know, art making, which, which can be so sort of, I mean, I think like, I don't know. I don't, I I feel like I'm just going to say this and it might not be, I don't mean to speak for you, but I kind of feel like your art is for the people in a way, you know, Mm -hmm. like your art isn't just for a rarefied bourgeois audience, you know, where like, uh, like an audience of people who have like a very canonical sort of relationship to, to like studying whatever paradigm, you know, like this has multiple openings and multiple places where people can kind of like gleam something from it who come from a variety of different backgrounds. And I think that's why your practice is so beautiful. And I think ultimately, you know, art can like, can like good work can do that. You know, it's like, I I went and saw like the Theaster Gates show. Did you get to see that when you were here? I didn't. Yeah. There's like, I have this really amazingly nerdy student who knows so much about ceramics. You know, yeah. I don't know anything. I know you know a lot about ceramics. I don't. And he was looking at the Astro's pots and he was like, oh, these were these were fired at cone 10. And he, he threw a baking soda salt 
like explosion at it at the last moment but he was explaining to me how like the kiln gets so hot that it sucks out all the oxygen and then it pulls like the the iron out of the material and literally brings like because there's no air left like i can't breathe in this kiln it pulls like the blackness out of the property of the clay Mm. and so like through that material form of like bending these elements he's like speaking to black subjecthood Mm. in both the sort of meanings of the work as it stands largely socio-politically but also like as it as a sort of practice of matching those materials and like to me that's like magic you know it's amazing yeah well i you know i think and this is something like i would love to explore with you is that you know a lot of my practice to speak from a point of honesty i write after i make the stuff you know like i have Mm -hmm. an idea about it. And I try to produce. And as I'm making, the material is actually informing a lot of what actually goes into the writing post, you know, where I'm like, okay, what? I know what I wanted to say. Where did I get to? And then how do I decode that and make it like um, sensible and mm-hmm. uh, or and like give a, a perspective, a personal perspective, you know, where it's like, all right, you can come in. If you don't read it, what do you see? read it after what do you see now you know kind of kind of thing but i'm wondering about that with your work do you develop the concept prior to or is it i mean especially working with people and and bodies and and all of their experiences like do these become material do do people become material uh, as well as maintaining their humanity no i don't think of people as material um I don't. I think of them as collaborators mm-hmm. and and totally a standalone, um, like energy energetic forces with their own agency and and distinctiveness and beauty. And it's more an invitation um, to to come in and 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 be in a prompt together to mm-hmm. kind of be in concert. Um, but I I I really maybe perhaps I offer like a glass vase. And you can pour your 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 version into that. You know, maybe perhaps there's some boundaries, or you know, I think become. I think that um, in plain sight's a good example. It's like we're going to sky type. You have a 15 character limit. Um, we can use a dot matrix um, capacity for for which is like five dots high. This can be Roman language. This can be any language. Any any language that you can use in a five dot matrix high sort of like formal um, line structure. Uh, it will go above a detention center, <laughs> like, like, mm-hmm. you know, so it's like there are sort of like sometimes more um, like concepts or prompts, but I try to leave a ton of agency and openness um, for a conversation and a response, you know? Yeah. yeah, that's wild. So you have to also like, where does that put expectation, you know, in your in your creative process? Like, it sounds, you know, a bit like you have to be nimble and flexible as like a jazz musician or something, you know, where it's, where it is improv. There is, um, there are variables that you, you can't, um, account for, but in those variables, you know, is the beauty. Oh yeah. I mean, I think for example, like working on this recent work, Human Measure is a dance piece. And I was working with like 19 year old to 27 year old dancers, you know, and all of them trans, all of them non-binary thinking back to my own experience of being that age and not having even words for my identity because like the world just didn't have that yet, but also just not even having any like 
like Butch Dykes, who I could call and ask questions to, you know, they're just, it didn't exist. It still doesn't exist. Yeah. Like older than me, there's Catherine Opie, who else? Like right. doesn't exist. Not there, not there, nowhere. And so like, I'm really, really conscientious of what it means for me to like take the work that I do that explores violence, the construction of violence on my own body and to ask like young trans people to do that too. And so, so much of the work has been about facilitating, um, like offering tools, like first teaching them, you know, like bringing in a workshop with like a somatic healer or having them learn like internal martial arts or like saying like in the beginning of rehearsal, like, where are you at today? Like I'm at a three. Okay. Rehearsal's at a three. So that's the nimbleness. That's the dexterity. I'm at a 10. Let's blow it out. Great. Let's go for it. You know, so, but really just um, a lot of checking in and a lot of just, um, yeah, just being kind of thoughtful with each other. You know, like having a young person who's having dysphoria and just breaks down crying. Like, I just, I'm so dysphoric today. I just fucking hate my body today. Mm. You know, and like everybody else knows what that feels like. And we're like, it's okay. Like, we love you anyhow. And you're fucking beautiful. Yeah. You know? And let's dance it out, you know, like having, having those sort of spaces where we can build that into the conversation versus like, you're feeling that way you have to hide it and you go home and cry, you know, alone, <laughs> you know, that's like a really different experience, um, than acknowledging it, making space for it and allowing that to be part of the process. So that for me has been like a very healing experience to be able to like open that process and give that, and not, I'm not giving that space. I'm just like, we're all creating that space together to be able to like witness them and, um, and just to have that sort of, yeah, just that openness back and forth has been like really beautiful, very loving and mm. and very healing for me as like, as someone who reflects upon my, my youth and my experience of not having that, you know, mm. it heals me. It heals that part of me now. No, I mean, working with younger folks, there is something that I'm, becoming more and more like hyper aware of is their, their capacity to describe it. I think about this in my own life and, uh, my experience as like a hetero male in, in the world. Like I haven't the emotional intelligence to like describe the feelings that I'm having. And so I reduce it to single syllable emotions, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. and in doing so you're actually depriving not only like <laughs> something worse than bad you're also uh undermining something greater than joy like not having the vocabulary to describe and expand the spectrum of of an emotional uh uh experience even like whether that's emotional or literally in your body like where does it hurt how does it hurt what are the feelings you know like i'm like man i have i have grown up in a time and age where it was uh, just deprived of any of that intelligence as intelligence, you know? Yeah. Um, and working with young folks, like there is a, a capacity to like really get to the center of where they're at, how they're feeling and they're interacting with one another in the same way. That is fascinating. It's, it's also, it makes me think of like, you know, as you were saying, like, who do I look up to? Who are my elders? You know, um, mm -hmm. who, who can I talk to? Who can guide me? I'm like, man, our elders live in the continuum, you know, sometimes you find them and they're younger than you, you know? Um, totally. Yeah. And there's something really, really beautiful about that. And I'm thinking about it in the relationship to one working collaboratively with, with other people, 
but also in the position that you're at as, as educator, you know, as, as professor, instructor, teacher, you know? Um, right. Yeah. That's it's a trip. It's a trip. That's a trip. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I've been really enjoying, I've been really enjoying collaborating and collaborating in different capacities, like from something like in plain sight, which is a very didactic some might say artwork, like obviously political, you know, with an intention, um, not just to kind of symbolically or metaphorically express, but to really draw attention to a real world problem and then offer and then support organizers that are, that are doing that work, uplift the organizers versus make work about the issue. And then specifically like have paths for people to take real world action. Like that's a very different sort of work than making a piece of contemporary dance. And I don't know about you, but I, I actually, I think this is true of your practice too, is like you, there's like a desire to stretch in many directions, you know, yeah. um, to stay dex dexterous. You know, the, like sometimes I feel like that when you're pushing up against the edges of, of the limit of a form, oh, like rather than keep pushing and crushing yourself, it's like just, it's better to kind of move in a completely different direction. Even even though the, the, the kind of like, logic of, of like the learned mind is just keep refining, keep refining, keep refining. I always find myself kind of like bouncing from things I don't know to more things I don't know. Like yeah. to me, that's a more productive place. Absolutely. There was, there was a quote I heard somewhere and I've been like meditating on this idea of, uh, what we know is finite. What we don't know is infinite. You know, I'm mm. like, Let's start from not knowing. Like my ignorance is limitless. Like if I can yeah. come, <laughs> if I can come from that place, like I then I feel um, it's a great kind of like humbling and equalizing uh, position, you know. And I think yeah. that that pivot is is a part of that, right? Like okay, I'm pushing the edge of something. The point that I'm at, I'm either going to fall off or the resistance to go any further i'm just going to destroy myself in the process like i'm pushing against something that is at this point immovable but mm. that's because you're so close to it you know like i can't see everything from here i can't see all of my angles so when you pivot mm -hmm. it gives you the opportunity to step away from that and with distance you can see kind of the the larger scope of it plus whatever you end up pivoting into like Sure, there is a lot in in your practice where you're moving from one place to another, but in that there is a an arc of growth and an arc of understanding. Um, mm -hmm. And through that arc, uh, you have a better way to see the whole system rather than like being so close to the thing that you're trying to push. It's always been inspiring. I've always um, my wife is actually who introduced me to your to your work, and and I. I think the first thing that I saw was the, um, what was it? The monument push, like the, the, what was that piece called? I'm sorry. I, it was called monument push. Oh, nailed it. Yeah. Monument push. <laughs> you got That's it. exactly yeah. what it is. So what That's I was exactly thinking, what it is. Yeah, yeah, totally. <laughs> Good. Yeah. Doesn't mm -hmm. have to be t so sophisticated. It is what uh -huh. it is. <laughs> mm -hmm. That's right. Um, the opportunity to have support through labor like there's something that i tell my my children um and it's just like a little lesson about like how to be in the world i'm like defer to the burden if you're coming in a door and there's somebody outside with the bag like 
hold the door, defer to the burden. You know, if, mm. if I'm carrying wood and you're in the way, like get out of the way so I can do my job and finish my job. Nice. There was something invoked in that, in that work that reinforces that. And it's just like good human existence, like be a, a be a superhuman, you know, just be a superhuman. So you mm. see, you see this push, you see the burden, you know, um, and to invoke support through struggle, I think was very clever, very beautiful. And I could only imagine what it meant to be like there, you know, it was, it was very cool, but that was my first mm. introduction to your work. And, um, and I, and you said you're not a formal sculptor or anything along those lines. I would say that I am, I'm not trained formally. My mother was a sculptor. So I had like, wow. that basically I was a finishing crew. I learned by doing, and what I was doing was like sanding. Um, she worked in stone. So I was like, wow. always lifting heavy rock. I was like, okay, art is labor. Like it's struggle. Mm -hmm. It's effort. I never had the like romantic gaze on, on the art and artist, you know, I was like, oh no, I've seen it. You're it's, you know, I've lived it without choice, you know, without consent, like it's feast and famine and it's a lot of effort, you know, so mm -hmm. <laughs> it's tons mm -hmm. of effort. I feel like that took place in that first piece that I had seen. And then the object of like the, the monument itself, I was like, what is this thing? Like, what, what is it? You know, I just saw the action of, of pushing it. I think it was through Boston. Did you do it in multiple places or was it, where was it? I've only done it. I've only done it once. I would love to do it in multiple places. It requires a lot of kind of care and support from the institution. Mm -hmm. So I think that's, it's, it, you know, it's like not that easy a piece because not only do you take it out of the public space and it's 2000 pounds and it doesn't have any brakes or steering mechanism. Right. <laughs> so there's that, which I realized really late in the game. I was like, good thing there's no any hills here. <laughs> you know? um, but really like the task was I was working with the young curator at the Bemis Center. And this was in 2017. So it was like mm. the year after Trump was elected and it was in Omaha, Nebraska, mm -hmm. which is like, you know, the center of like red America. Yeah. And um, this young curator was his like first time curating a solo show of an artist. He was really cool. His name was Alex Priest, which is kind of a beautiful name. Um, and he, I think in many ways, like, he he was kind of coming out of the closet at the same time that he was working with me. Mm. And I think in working with me, I wanted the monument push to, to go to these different sites that were important to the local community. And so I tasked Alex with like really doing some deep research and like meeting different kind of subgroups, quote unquote, of the LGBT like rainbow. Because there's like, of course, like anything. It's so divided by age, by class, by race, by gender, et cetera, et cetera. And so like Alex did a, Omaha is a huge town. So he did a really good job of making inroads with like all sorts of people. And so, you know, we had, um, there was this one man who came to see my talk in Omaha and he was like, I am a gay man. I, I struggled through the AIDS crisis. You know, I, I lived to tell the tale. I don't understand trans identity. And this mm. is like 2017. So things, there's a lot more dialogue now, but I was like, just come to this performance. Um, come check it out. And unbeknownst to me, like he was the founder of the gay pride um, parade in Omaha. But back when they first did it in 1984, it was like so shameful that you had to wear a paper shopping bag over your head. 
Hmm. Because like if you were identified as as being a homosexual, it would be grounds for like a severe beatdown. Yeah. And people who went, who came to support wore shape paper shopping bags under their heads. So this is wow. not like the moment of like absolute vodka sponsorship. This is like a time of deep punishment and shame, and yet still this push to move forward. And unbeknownst, to, I, I didn't know that that was he, but like we were already pushing the monument down the the, the pride route, the mm-hmm. original pride route. And so when I found out that he was the founder and he happened to be there, I was like, will you please start pushing? And he's like 80 something, you know, so of course he can't push it. And then these like three or four young trans kids came up around him and helped him move it. And then I could see his mind click like, I get it. Like they're here because I was here, you know. And so um, it has the capacity to do that. But my point being, there was just a lot of inroads that the curator had to make with these like a variety of different lived experiences so that we could have those kind of like overlaps and weaves, mm. um, which was ultimately, again, like not something that you could totally predict, but um, kind of came came to be part of things. And um, as, as the piece kind of just literally like unraveled um, or didn't unravel, but like moved, moved towards its completion, I guess. Yeah. Was it, it was bronze now? Yeah, it's a bronze casting. I made it, I actually made it with students through a fellowship uh, at Syracuse University. They have like a, a foundry up there mm. and they have a, a, an amazing master caster. Uh, I'd never, I'd never done a casting before. I'd certainly never cast like a four and a half foot by like, a huge piece. I think we had like, I don't know, some ridiculous amount of sections of it that we had to solder back together. It was, it was nuts. We made it in one semester. And it, was, it was amazing. It was like really a, a huge project to undertake. Um, but it was a lot of fun to just like really push it out with these, with these kids. Yeah. I imagine, and I could be wrong because of the strength of the, of the material, but was it like abraded along that path? Like, did it grind, grind it down or shift its, its foot? Um, well, we actually built a, like a steel plinth that it sits upon that has like bearings uh, and wheels. Okay. So it's, it's not just like fully, it, it's, <laughs> it's somewhat money, somewhat mobilizable. Uh, so, so yes, no, the, the, I obviously didn't do a deep enough dive into <laughs> the, the architecture of the, of the piece. It like, yeah. it exists in my mind in a way that is like, so contrary, I like, which, I is, like that. which is amazing. Yeah. Yeah. I'm like, God, what? What piece but the, am I thinking the, of? <laughs> yeah, but there is like, you know, certain things that allow for that sort of demarcation. Like, you know, there's no patina on it such that like, you know, I was looking at the gates of like the Basilica um, in in Madrid. It has these like polished, just like these huge, beautiful bronze doors that depict like the life of Christ or something. And like, of course, the handle is like the crucifix, you know, and the whole thing has been weathered green with the exception of where the hands have like the repeated hands of worshipers have come to grip that door handle over the mm. centuries. And it's just shone this beautiful, bright property of the material, whereas everything else is just kind of devastated through weather. Mm-hmm. And, and so I liked this idea of like leaving the surface open such that it would become like indexical of touch and indexical of like raindrops or just like however the work was treated would show up at its surface. And so it does have that aspect of like its life story being inscribed into its surface. And then the, the, the piece itself is, is this um, it's representative of some of the other work that you were doing as far as like exerting force on a, on a large 
body of clay. It was within that. Was it a piece made with that same kind of like physicality and uh, its creation? Yeah, it's a it's a remnant from. So, like, basically, my works just kind of flow into each other, and so becoming an image was like a early work that I started in 2012 when I was invited by the by the one archives, which is like the largest LGBT archive. And I think in North America housed at USC and they had a, an exhibition where they were like asking trans artists to respond to the trans content in the archive. And this was in 2012. So again, like not a lot of discussion going on, not a lot of representation, not a lot of words to talk about these things yet. And to be honest, like the archive had very little trans representation and there was like three months to make the work, you know, so I didn't really have time to do that dig to find that one or two subjectivities that existed in this archive of, in this case, dead gay white guys, you know. Mm-hmm. So I, I made a work that kind of spoke to troubling the archival process, which was to or like the idea of like whose truths are captured and stored and historicized and whose are like left out of that sort of like statistical analysis. Um, and so we gutted one of the rooms of the archives. We moved all the filing cabinets out. I built like a dark room entrance. You'd have to pass through two doors to get mm. into the performance space. And then I built a 2000 pound monolith of clay in the center. And the ushers were kind of like also performers, very strict. Mm. And they'd bring the audience in and the pitch blackness and then like compress them together so bodies were forced to touch wow um in this blackness and then once everything is loaded i come in with a photographer who has like a flash on his camera and uh basically i beat the living daylights out of this clay but i'm blind like i can't see the clay i have to train for kind of blind target practice and like a super hyper um sort of cardiovascular conditioning conditioning of like my tendons and my bones for impact but i'm searching for this material in the darkness the the photographer isn't able to like frame me and take a quote-unquote good photo of me because he's also blind but what happens is whenever like he presses the the shutter release it releases the flash which um, all of a sudden just like fills the room with so much brightness that it sears an after image onto the audience members eyes and so they experience this work as a sort of living floating archive of retinal burns that are completely different human to human depending on the physiology of your eye maybe you see purple and green maybe you see black and white maybe it flows left maybe it flows right you know so it's all about subjective truth and the idea of like how we allegedly are witnessing and are and even as a collective we can have very different experiences of that um and so that was the initial prompt was to unpack this sort of like mediation of the camera and to unpack photography within the context of an archive but then when i turned on the lights at the end i was like oh my god there's a sculpture that's been made you know and it really became to me like an exploration of this idea of um of like, if we're looking for a shape of violence, like this indeed looks like an abstraction, but in fact it is, every strike is is an indexical relationship to like a fist, a knee, an elbow. And you can really see like the hair follicles on the fingers, like you can feel, and although it is made by my body, it stands in for me to like a sort of collective body, the sort of like accumulated shape of trauma, mm. if you will. Mm-hmm. And, you know, like the clay is made out of like, the sculpture is made out of like a type of clay called WED2E17, which is like a, a stop motion animation clay developed by Disney. 
kind of, uh, that was not, not necessarily on purpose. I went to the clay company and like Goldilocks, like punched a bunch of bricks till I felt the right one. You know? Oh my like, God. Oh, You're just right. This perfect. <laughs> and then it turned out to be Walt Disney's animation clay, which was like kind of delightful when you're thinking about unforeclosed, you know, identity as something that's shifting and fluid. Mm-hmm. It's kind of cool to have a clay that isn't, is unfixable, you know? But uh, if you're thinking about a monument to trans violence, as I was back in the day, uh, this, this kind of clay is unfireable, so it just like dries out and turns to dust. So I wanted to create a sort of like preciousness by using sort of historically precious materials. Like I made a cement cast, I made a bronze cast. So it's like these like materials that stick around. And then the idea was to place those on sites where acts of violence or resilience had occurred. But then I got into the public sculpture wormhole, and I was like. Let's just move this thing around. <laughs> <laughs> I need to pivot. There's there's an yeah. edge here. There's a resistant mm-hmm. edge. There's a resistant edge. Yeah, I'm yeah. not interested in that edge. No, I'm not interested there... in the edge. Is like you're a child with a stick bubble gum. Does it cut you? Like I don't know. This is not yeah, my yeah. concern. <laughs> no, totally. The Lloyds. That's that's what I call that space. The Lloyds. Mm. Yeah, mm. yeah. There's. It's like the the committees on public work. You know. <laughs> headed headed by a variety of Lloyds, you know, where you're just like, dude, come on. What are you getting in the way of? And why are you hiding behind public safety? Like what, oh what God. is, I'm, I swear if that child hurts themselves doing whatever it is that you imagine that they're doing, they'll probably do it once. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Are they going to do it again? No, it's going to harm them. <laughs> like, figure right. it out. Right. Figure it right. out. <laughs> There's yeah, automobiles driving down the road. Like that's dangerous. Yes. Yes, agreed. Yeah, I know. This like idea of trying to mitigate like risk with art is mm. <laughs> yeah. But yeah. Yeah. Woo. Okay. Thank you for sharing all of that because becoming an image, the retinal burn aspect of it. I'm like, oh, okay. That's why I'm focused only on the object of the the monument as a residue as it exists in my mind is because I didn't experience the flash burn of a visual residue from from performance. Like I've seen photographs of it, but you yeah. don't understand what no. happens in that space. No, but no. As, yeah, the, the document is totally like a failure of a live experience. And that's always the case. They, they yeah. always are. Yeah, yeah, totally. Yeah. And that's the beauty of a, of a live experience. Like, yes. Like you should probably go because what we're going to share, what's going to get moved around, what's going to be a part of the public record, the art canon, what's going to be archived in, you know, through these systems is a facsimile, a poor facsimile of the experience. Yes. Yeah. And I like the idea of thinking of the like audience members as like tiny archives, you know, that they like carry the work within their bodies, you know? Oh yeah. No, I, I think as a native artist, I'm always looking at, um, like I had to go through a certain level of acceptance in order to access archives, um, mm-hmm. in a way, put on a cotton glove, you know, examine experience, potentially feed and greet ancestors that are trapped in these archives. Mm-hmm. And I think through that process, I've come to the, of like almost the identical conclusion, which is Every single one of us who are alive today are the most perfect archive of the human experience. And that's us collectively, you know, any individual 
houses their their lived experience but collectively like we have archived with total perfection the human experience in its relationship to place it's in relationship to environment and time and the problem is is it's so sophisticated and so complex and and i think that's something that's missing in our kind of general popular culture experience is complexity you know we've like oh yeah 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 i really feel like we're we're in such a state of polarity that there's this desire to water everything down so it can be articulated simply and like stripped of its complexity such that we can digest it and in the stripping of the of the complexity we actually just make things so much more complicated because it, it, it creates a tremendous problem like i actually think the only way through is divergent contradicting experiences that allow for a sort of productive disagreement and a holding for like the multiplicity of truths as opposed to you know obviously having one one sort of like idea of who's right and wrong it just doesn't just doesn't make any sense and i really felt like actually getting to work on in plain sight taught me that so well because it was so much about working with like you know i was talking about this a little bit with ginger like about how we're in such a moment of identity politics, which in a way I'm I'm grateful for because it, a, to a certain extent there was just no sort of acknowledgement of even a way to like to say who I was and why, you know? And of course you're so much more than just those identity markers. And as an artist, you're so much more than that. But, you know, it does shape you as well. And But at the same time, we are siloed through like this neoliberalist system um, into these factions which pit us against each other and which also state that, you know, you know, like I actually got feedback from funders saying things like, well, you're not Mexican. Why are you making this work? You know, and I was like, well, firstly, you're totally ignorant to think that this is something that just <laughs> like, it just affects like, you know, just like I don't even know where to start with that, you know, but but this idea that, you know, that mm, those who are directly impacted should shoulder the burden. Mm-hmm. You know, like that, that there isn't room for solidarity and for multiplicity and for difficulty. You know, it's like I'll, I tell that to my students. It's like, look, I know we're in a time where I know you're afraid to disagree, but let's like reframe this as a courageous conversation. And let's just agree that we're going to be a safe space to disagree in here. And that this is actually like an incredibly generative part of the learning experience. So let's just like allow ourselves to just loosen the safety valve a little bit, but to note that we'll actually still show up for each other. You mm-hmm. know? Yeah. And I think, you know, the, the project with in plain sight, you're, you're, I mean, one writing in the sky, just as a, like, what a strange um, thing that everybody could relate to. Everybody's seen sky writing to utilize the privilege and the space that you have in order to provide this material to so many people to express themselves in a way that um, their audience is like anything on the ground underneath it, you know, like take it how you want. And also where we're going to like center this is in the, in the um, area of most resistance, you know, like what are you going to do? Like, how can you stop skywriting. I experience how it's high winds, but, uh, uh, the, the idea of creating an opportunity for so many people to express themselves at like literal elevated, uh, level 
it's like so base and so profound simultaneously, you know, where it's like, I don't know, it's, it's high writing. Like we're writing it in the, in the sky, you know, like I know you had a big part in organization of the, of the whole project and stuff like that, but it was, it, it always felt like ours, you know, it felt like something in a, in a way that I think by relinquishing that, um, um, by providing that material, it's like, do what you, you want with this here, you know, like you said, like a creative vase, like pour into it, whatever you want, as long as it fits within this shape, you know, of, of, uh, um, limitations or potentialities, you know, depending on how you look at it. Yeah. And your, your piece was so beautiful because you wrote in, in like a native tongue, right? Yeah, it like, was I don't in, think that's well, not was, been done before, you know? <laughs> totally. Totally. No, there was, there was a, it was in, um, Tahana Autumn. Um, yeah. and, and we were in Tucson and the, there were so many, like we were out by this, you know, it was like right around, I think the pandemic had hit, right? Like it was, it was in those, yeah. in those weary times. Um, my wife and I drove out and we slept in the back of my truck, like at a little, like abandoned place, a uh, little abandoned gas station close to the detention center. Mm-hmm. And when we got up in the morning, just kind of like, on the phone, talking to people, making sure that it was, you know, everything was going through. When it, is it clear? We're going to film. Like so many Tohono Autumn people like showed up who were live in so Tucson. Cool. Yeah. Yeah. Like on the, on the road where I was, I was like, you know, I guess there wasn't a whole lot of roads to this detention center and they knew where it was going to be, but there was, um, they were excited for that very reason. Like when and how has it ever been written in the sky, you know, and it's not my language. And so I had to, I was talking with um, some other folks from another project that I was working on that put me in proximity with um, Tohono Autumn people. So like, I just threw that, threw that grapevine, you know, it like kind of traveled around and, and folks were showing up from, from Tucson waiting to see their language written in the sky over the top of, of uh, this community. But there's like, you know, like I said, there's a limitation and, but there's also possibility, like the limitation created something that was up until that moment impossible, you know, um, which is dope. That's like, Mm. that's very cool. Well, I was glad to have your collaboration in so many, I mean, it was, it felt really, felt really amazing to get to like, yeah, to be part of, of just this like group of people. There's, there was just so much power that's been stripped and there's a sense sometimes where you can, it's easier, I think, for folks to feel um, overwhelmed, which then kind of creates a sense of complacency because you're like, well, I'm not even going to watch the news because it's all just so horrible and it doesn't affect me anyways. And like, you know, in knowing about this, all it does is traumatize me and I have no agency because they're gerrymandering. And this like, it goes on and on and people just start to feel sort of stripped of agency and then they no longer participate, which is mm-hmm. extra dangerous. Mm-hmm. You know, and so I really feel like art is one of the few ways that we can, um, like they can't take away our artistic agency. It's impossible. You can't extract it from us. They can't take away my sense of humor either. You know, mm-hmm. like those, those things are like absolutely essential to fighting fascism, mm-hmm. you know? And so I feel like it's like in those, those moments of like collective artistic endeavor, and that kind of like focusing of our creative forces like that, that to me 
is like what feels good about being alive and what feels right about being here, you know, those moments. Yeah, totally, totally. And like the generosity, I think that there's incredible generosity that still exists, but it has been, um, uh, because there are so many people that take things that generosity is, it creates a vacuum, right? Like I'm giving you this and you're taking it. So it just creates this vacuum, but there is something profound about, um, and it's something that I, that I, I like saying to, um, myself primarily, but usually when I'm talking to my kids, I'm like, if you give it away, they can't take it from you. Like it's a gift. You can have this. And I think that there is something true about that with the um, the artist and the artist condition, regardless of where or how they are working. You know that that whatever whatever kind of art it is that you're creating, whether it's real high or real low, or whether it's you're doing something beautifully that people don't consider art at the moment, your the generosity is like so profound that there is no monetary exchange that, that makes it equal, you know, like the, Mm. the, um, the cost of its production, the cost of its creation is so high that there is no kind of like financial economic return that could justify all of that. Cause we're talking about generations and generations of knowledge, you know, um, Mm. moving through, even like when you're talking about pushing the edge, like we've been pushing on that edge for generations. Like where we're at right now is, you know, that, that thing. Like, I hope I can nudge it a little bit and also create a platform for the next generation to like continue this push, you know? So there's Mm -hmm. something really beautiful. I mean, and I'm thinking about this in relationship to um, your work. And as you're, as you're talking about, like, you know, the, the trans archive in your lived experience, like what um, are, are there like, quantifiable, uh, growth and movement that provides like, um, encouragement or, or, um, like, where do you feel you, you stand as yourself, but then also from creating the archive and adding to the the breadth and the canon of, uh, trans artists in, on a global context in the Americas, you know, is there, is there movement in ways that you can like, really noticeably see and and um yeah if you could describe any of that experience from your lived position yeah i mean i would say that there's just been i mean it's partially like access to new technologies and the internet is just i grew up before the internet you know and before you could find community online you know Mm -hmm. and so i think what's fascinating to me is to encounter young people like my students many of whom who identify as non-binary or trans, but don't know, like don't know about Marsha P. Johnson or Sylvia Rivera, or don't know about um, the the amount of sort of like labor uh, that has gotten people to where they are now where they don't have to think about it, you know? And that, that can be wild for me uh, to, to, to like, to, to see the vacuum of knowledge there, you know? And so I really see that, um, that's part of the reason why I want to be, you know, teaching is that I can help with that. And young people are very hungry for it. You know, they want to know that they, they want to, but I'd say like in terms of the sort of tokenizing aspect, like one of my favorite quotes around tokenization is from Cheryl Grenier, who is like the first black lesbian who made like a feature film called the watermelon woman. And she was on NPR talking to a 
doing, doing an interview and they, you know, she, they were talking about tokenization and she said, when someone makes you a token, you put it in the bus and ride, you know, that huh. there's like, and, and there's, I think there's something to that too. Like, so I'd say like, in terms of like the ways in which I've been perhaps tokenized, I just like bring my full artwork and everything that I have. I know that I'm more than that, but I'll also challenge the institutions to say like, all right, well, who else are you inviting, you know, to participate? And, you know, if there isn't a sort of complexity of, of identities in relationship to the supposed trans show that they're programming, like, I won't take people to task, but I'll say like, hey, uh, I've noticed that you have a vacuum of representation here. Like, have you, do you know these artists? Like, do you have their contact? So I think like that we do that for each other as a way of just um, making sure it's like also like you want to lift the, the mantle of representation off yourself, mm. but you also want there to be just more dialogue. Right. Yeah. And I feel like that has proliferated and yet it's still, and yet there is still like, very few like collections that collect trans artists, for example, you know? So mm. it's like, it's like, there's, there's like, there's a lot of representation, but not actually like in the places of power or the sort of spaces that would actually, it's to, it's like sort of like external programming stuff that where they can like kind of tick the box, but not actually support anybody, mm. you know? So there's still a lot of that happening. Um, and then there's just like, but there is also a lot of like incredible global activity um, and, and, and communication that is happening through online platforms that is really exciting to witness, you know, um, and it's exciting to witness the speed in which people can, as you were saying earlier, like talk about their feelings, yeah, you know, and have words to describe this. So I think like, it's only been very recently because I think I'm a bit of a workaholic as I'm sure you are as well. Right. Mm -hmm. Like there is a certain like speed at which we work, which allows us to escape the pain that maybe mm -hmm. bore us to work, you know? And I was on like an 11 day meditation sit just this past month um, where I meditated like 111 hours. And I had this, like, I totally lost my body. It disappeared. <laughs> but before I disappeared, I had this sort of epiphany that, you know, I, yeah, I like, I just, I grew up one generation separated from electroshock therapy, you right. know, like, every single person that I had a sort of like sexual romantic connection with was ashamed of me and literally hid me, mm. you know, from their family, from their community. Like, and that was just normal because that's just the way things were. And so yeah. I just kind of normalized that in my mind, in my history. But like, I realized that in this moment of like sitting with my, with my flesh, like evaluating the sort of sensation of like the deeply rooted feelings inside my body that I was holding so much shame, mm. you know, like so much shame that I had internalized and I didn't realize that I was walking around with all that shame. And so I think one of the beauties of like watching younger generations who don't have that shame, like maybe they don't have that knowledge base and history, which, which needs to be imparted, but it's beautiful to see them move with less cords tying them down you know um and so i see that i see that working as well and that's that's like a beautiful thing to witness yeah that's pretty wild just thinking about the um like to be able to move with freedom and privilege of 
of not knowing your history, there's like something to be said yeah. in that, you know, like that's, yeah. that's, that's yeah. a, that's a profound tick in the, in the movement towards like normalization, you know, it's like, well, I don't even know how this happened, but check it out. I'm like, I, I, I'm not, I don't need to know. I have full access, you know, like that's, there's something to be said about that. I think the history is important. And I think it will come right. Like it, it's not, um, it's so close, like the, in the, in the scope of the human experience, like we go through these waves of understanding enlightenment and then dark ages, you know, like these notions of like incredible growth and then the edge of that or the pendulum swings back in the other direction, you know, I think between generations, but between, um, even like story and storytelling, like as the, as the names are invoked and the situations are invoked, the memory exists within all of us. And then like the actual story, like the blood and the sweat becomes, you know, the icor of gods, you know, it's like, it's no longer, yeah. yeah, yeah. It's no longer like visceral human experience. It's like now, now this exists in the, in the scope of, of, um, legend in, in our story, mm. but you need distance and you need time in order for that mm. legend to, to be created. But the internet has like screwed time up in a way or, or didn't yeah. screw it up. It changed it profoundly. Right. Like, and, and not only it's like time space is it's not even screwed up with just time. It's like time space in general, you know, like distances right. are able to be navigated at like at tremendous speeds. And so uh, communication, you know, all of these sorts of things, it's, it's interesting to be alive presently. And, um, I was also, I was born in 1979. So like, I pretty much grew up with the internet, you know, like it didn't exist when I was young. I remember it in high school, like coming, coming about, I remember computers, like my first typing classes were on uh, typewriters and, uh, and I never, I didn't, I didn't bite, you know, I was like, I lost a bunch of writing on a floppy disk. That's what happened to uh, me. And, and you were and like, fuck this. <laughs> I was like, dude, it's so fragile. It's never going to make it, you know? Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> And then I, I watched the whole world become fragile and I was like, oh, oh yes, I see. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> I yeah. play too rough. I understand. Mm-hmm. It's, it's me. <laughs> well, and that makes sense that you have such um, a sort of like practice that's rooted in the sort of analog um, use of hand, use of skill, use of body, right? Like totally. that's a way of kind of anchoring, like rooting um, back down away from all this kind of fracturing, you know? Yeah. And I think, I think that's also a part of the, the, the archive, right? Like our physicality, our movement, our bodies, how they, how they navigate space. Like I, I would love to actually dive into that with you with the exploration into, um, transmutation, transformation, you know, like what it means to, to, this is something that I've been thinking about. Cause I had, I had a couple of projects where I actually had to, um, try to get more fit to produce the work, you know, where I was like, okay, I can't do this as, as I am right now. Like, and even after training, I was like gassed in the, in the Mm. process, you know, where I was like, holy smokes. Like, I feel like I'm in high school again, running football, you know, like Mm -hmm. with all this regalia, you know, it's all like sports equipment. So I had like a little green room that I was changing in. And I was like, I had these like visceral, like olfactory memories. I was like, I'm in the locker room. Like, Oh my God, what is going on? You know? Wow. Yeah. Yeah. But this idea of, you know, as you had mentioned, like there's something in my practice that's like very involved in process and making with the hand, you know, 
as like uh, the object becomes kind of like a, um, a record of that skill set, that knowledge, right? So I'm 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 interested in like what was the kind of path and route of like recognizing yourself and your body as like a way to um, create, you know, um, to like I don't know make. Uh, I think you know I I had. When I was little, I was very ill from like ages nine to 14. Mm. And I had like this undiagnosed disease, which was not that big a deal, but because it went rogue for so long, it became a big deal. And I, I uh, almost died twice when mm. I was 14, uh, once in surgery and once with like complications in the surgery where I like, I literally bled out, like I'm bleeding ulcers and the nurse forgot to check on me and I like bled out pretty much all my blood and had to have like a full blood transfusion, Wow! you know, and, and the whole time for me, just nine to 14, I was telling my parents and doctors, like, I'm not well, like, I don't feel well. And they were like, you're a hysterical young woman. It's all Mm. in your head. And so I was told that the sort of, yeah, I was told that I was not sick and I was psychosomatic when I was actually really, really sick and almost died, (laughs) you know? (laughs) So at an early age, I learned two things, which is that like you, that, that you can't, you have to like take, you have to take your power and you can't let other people tell you how you are and what you want and like, and what, and like, and what your experience is. You can't relate, you can't like rely on other people's um, read of you to, to like equate your own experience, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that like we live in a system that was like very fraught in, in relation to power and that I had, I had no other choice but to like learn to care for my body and to understand my body as an instrument such that I could take care of myself because the system certainly wouldn't. You know, I learned that early on too. That it was like a sexist, misogynist system. Um, and, um, and so when I was about, like as soon as I kind of recovered from those surgeries and started to feel better, like I was very, because I was sick, I would grow like a quarter of an inch a year. So I was like, I'm like the classic Napoleonic, like like I was so tiny and weak, you know? And so I loved it to be strong. And um, and I didn't really have like artistry around me, but there was a like a YMCA, you know? And I just like, I just had it inside me that I needed to like, to learn to lift weights, you know? Mm. So like 15, I had like the encyclopedia for bodybuilding by Arnold Schwarzenegger. And I would like <laughs> try to do the intro workouts. It's completely insane, you know? So the, like, <laughs> and I think a lot of it also was like, because I was like trans and I didn't want puberty, you know? And I didn't, you know, I didn't have words for that. There was no words for that. Right. Like, I didn't know a single gay person, let alone a trans person, you know? But I was just like trying to like, you know, not let my body feminize. I did not want that, you know? Mm. And, and I think it was a sort of like, uh, intuitive practice for me to find not only to like, to say, I don't want that, but also this is what I have. And this is how I can be at home. You know, this is how I can actually tap into my, and so much of the work that I would do when I would work with clients is about like, not this punitive relationship to fitness. Like you're fat you need to lose weight. You need to look like X, but like, actually like what, like what, what is going to make you feel your power? Like it feels very good when you're in alignment with your body and, and your body and, and your mind are working together to reinforce each other. And you find a sort of peace, like that sort of harmony of being in the body is like, Mm. for me, essential, especially as a trans person, you know, um, 
because there's so much sort of dissonance and messaging that you are wrong and that you shouldn't exist. And so to be able to like physically tap into that sense of physical emboldenment and power, it's like you were talking about externalizing the object um, through the traces of your hands. It's like everything that we experience has a somatic, physical, mental effect on us. And so I really, I think I've like come to think deeply about that and how we can have a sort of like agency and understanding and sensitivity to that in relationship to like our own capacity for peace and love and how that can extend from oneself to others. You have to look after yourself as well, right? And so I'd say like, so illness drew me to that. And then I think I was always like a painter, like a hardcore representative representational like anal drawing painter person when I was little and I think like once I started bodybuilding um, at a young age the rigor that I would take in my representational work and externalize on paper became the, the sort of like bio biomechanics the sort of lines that I was hitting the way that like striation and tissue was lining up with forces of physics and gravity you know like that became the ways in which I was looking at movement while also like learning about like energy flow and and power so yeah and and then yeah so that's kind of how i i started working with my body i guess and then i went to art school and un, un, unwittingly i ended up in like a kind of weird marxist canadian art school that like were all these like experimental performance artists who were draft dodging in the 1960s like came and so there was this like whole lineage of radical practice that i was like exposed to not knowing anything about contemporary art and yeah i drank the kool-aid and mm-hmm. you know here i am <laughs> <laughs> wow that is wild it's it's so i mean it's about agency right like that's what i'm 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 recognizing like when you're pushed once again to like what are the limitations what are not you know what is the edge of this thing being yeah. able to to step away and to find your own agency in that and to generate like um like where can i generate power you know it seems and i and i see this with like uh, uh something that i admire with a lot of your work is that there is like the materiality is like you're producing it you know like like literal literal like i think of the pissed work you know i think of i think of um the physicality in your body i think about all of these things, but it provides agency where it's like, oh no, I am the manufacturing. This is, this is something that I know I'm not going to harm anybody else in the process of like, I think about this a lot in my own work. Cause I use a lot of like repurposed material, but I recognize where that material comes from, you know, and, and the manufacturing. And once again, this is going into this like cost value narrative, you know, Um, this is something that I truly respect about, about your work where I'm like, Oh yeah, no, like who's getting, who's getting harmed who, you know, like the recognition and understanding that the material um, has cost, you know? Uh, um, And then taking on the like the responsibility of that cost is always something that was like, absolutely inspiring something that i admire in your in your work where it's like oh yeah we we also produce a lot of things and mm-hmm. and how do you how do you find value in it and how do you reduce the cost on populace you know on globe by doing your work so much respect 
in that. And, and like, even like, I, I always thought about the, the, you know, once again, this is me building myth and narrative uh, on you from my uh, limited exposure. My, my infinite ignorance is like this idea of that. It wasn't about a, a response to lack of power, you know, that it was like, you know, that was very enlightening to me to under, to hear and understand, like, like how to, what generates kind of like the movement and the work and the, and the trajectory of oneself, you know, as a, as a way, as a, like a first ring of community, you know, like that's what, mm. that's what seems really beautiful about it is like, how, how do we have this first ring of community, me as community, you know, me as mm-hmm. a relationship to my body, my muscles, my gut, you know, all of this sort of stuff as the first ring, are we in right relationship? Then can we expand out from that place? I, I, yes. Yes. I think that's, that's, that's beautiful. Uh, yeah. Thank you. I think, I mean, I think it's, I think it's really true. And I think, yeah, I think, you know, I think it's like, um, I don't know. I've been reading this book. I don't know if you've ever heard of it. It's called Can the Monster Speak? Have mm. you heard of it? Mm-mm. It's by Paul Preciado, who's one of my favorite philosophers and writers. Um, and he's like, he's a trans guy. And this is his speech that he was, he was um, invited to speak through the Academy of Psychoanalysts like in, in Paris. And uh, I guess it was like mm, 2019. And he was booed off stage, like heckled, heckled. And um, people like took, you know, like phone videos of his speech. Um, So it's been like kind of parsed and like miscirculated. And so he actually transcribed the speech and and has it here in this little book here. And it's called Can the the Monster Speak? And it's his address to this like like 3,000 clinicians, you know, who see, you know, trans people as like, you know, stemming from Freud's Oedipal complex or like having penis envy. Like it's just like this very trapped sort of um it's it's a pro it's a it's like still the ways in which trans people like if i want to go and have like gender affirming surgery i need a letter from my psychiatrist you know stating that i have gender dysphoria you know like i can't just go do that you know like we still live under all these conditions of having to prove our age our agency and selfhood and there's just like such an incredible articulation and he talks about, you know, the cage of being born in a woman's body, but also the cage of a man's body, mm. you know, and that actually, um, it's still a cage, but it's one that's been chosen, you know, As in, um, it's just, I don't know why I'm on this, like, uh, this, there's, there, there's like a quote in here around freedom that I want to find for you, but I'll, I'll, I'll find it after our talk and I'll, I'll type it up for you because I think it's like kind of relevant to what we're discussing here, you know? Is there, I don't want to take too much of your time. I love catching up with you, but I'm, I'm really interested in, in, um, this is also an archive, like broken boxes, the podcast as a format, like some of my best friends I've never met. And they're just voices on the other side of a podcast that I listen to while I'm working Mm -hmm. in my studio, you know? Mm -hmm. And, uh, I used to, I would always tell, uh, Ginger, I'm like, Oh, I was listening to this podcast. I would say it so much that I would just start calling them my friends. I was like, my friend (laughs) told me instead of, uh, I want to hear your, I want your, your podcast lists. Oh, I've got, uh, there's, they're interesting. Well, and they're shifting too. Like they're, when mm-hmm. I first started, I started, I got in early cause I also have, um, the dyslexia, um, and, and also like ADHD or whatever they call it, all of these things, these diagnoses, mm-hmm. you know, that mm-hmm. came in and, um, I struggle with reading, you know, I struggle yeah. with it. 
And uh, I struggle with typing. Like that's even, I have like neurological, like uh, neurodivergence around like spreadsheets and grid Mm -hmm. format things. You know, I'm like, oh, I can't even, can't even Mm -hmm. comprehend. Me too. Oh, it runs me enough to make me scream and run out of the room. Oh yeah, to totally. Look at, look at a pile of numbers. I'm like, no. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Um, so I, I, I really, I'm, I'm a big audiobook listener and podcast. You know, um, so between those, I've, I've like, I remember I was really into 99% Invisible, which was like a design, um, and then. Uh, uh, Song Exploder was great. Radio Lab. There's some like weird random ones that I I just found one that was called. Oh, I listened to a lot of like uh, myth and lore, you know, uh, podcasts because mm-hmm. I love mm-hmm. I love the like uh, story that we collectively have created in our in our like mythological archetypes, you know. Mm-hmm. I'm like, oh, that, that's such great information and and like I don't know connective. There, you know, the, seeing those archetypes across cultural uh, barriers, I think, are pillars to build bridges. You know, you're like, oh, OK, you know what I'm talking about when I say this creature or that, you know, that mm. hero. Mm. Um, mm-hmm. So there's like myths and legends and um, lore, I think, was another one. But I found this really random one that I really love and he doesn't produce a whole lot of, a lot of uh, uh, like there's big gaps in between production. Um, but it was, it's called imaginary advice. It's mm. fantastic. It's fun. It's he's a writer, but all of his stories are, he like creates prompts that are um, it's like writing with one hand tied behind your back. Like he's like, all right, here's, mm. here's the, the prompt. And now I'm going to write a story with this prompt, you know? Um, so it's really, mm. they're really fun. They're like bizarro and, and, uh, I wish more was produced, but I also like that there's not more produced so that I'm excited every time a new one comes up. Um, mm, a little gem. Yeah, totally. But let me ask you, is there, um, because this is archive, like, mm-hmm. is there something you want to leave in the record of the people who listen to this? Um, yeah, you know, you know what there is, um, there's a, there's a quote I'd like to read. That's cool. Yes. Um, it's um, by James Baldwin, who continues to just like blow my brain open with how sentient and like relevant everything he wrote years mm. and years ago is today. And this is about being an artist. And um, it's from his writing on art and creativity. And it says the artist is distinguished from all other responsible actors in society, the politicians, the legislatures, the educators and the scientists by the fact that I'm going to change the pronouns. They are their own test tube, their own laboratory, working according to very rigorous rules, however understated these may be, and cannot allow consideration to supersede their responsibility to reveal all that they can possibly discover concerning the mystery of the human being. Mm. Society must accept some things as real, but they must always know that visibility the visible reality hides a deeper one and that all our action and achievement rest on things unseen. A society must assume that it is stable, but the artist must know and they must let us know that there is nothing stable under the heavens. One cannot possibly build a school, teach a child or drive a car without taking some things for granted, but the artist cannot and must not take anything for granted 
but must drive to the heart of every answer and expose the question that the answer hides. Beautiful. So I think that's like, yeah, this exposing the question that the answer hides and also like thinking of ourselves as test tubes. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's just, it's really beautiful and highly resonant. So Absolutely. I'll, I'll, I'll leave us with that. Oh, uh, it's but, been a pleasure castles. Oh, thank you. Chinupa. Like likewise. And you know, I'm such, I have always admired your work and I, I really love sharing your work with my students. They're so moved by it and they instantly say like, I must know more about this and, um, and go vigorously into a research mode on you. So you're inspiring a lot of, of even if you're not teaching in the sort of position of like, you know, like an appointed institutional way, your work is, is definitely teaching. Mm. Um, and I'm grateful to have it as a, a tool in which to, to showcase um, the sort of things you're, you're, you delved me into. So thank you. Awesome. Thank you too. I really appreciate it. I look forward to seeing you in person again. Yes. Sometime soon. Love you. All right. Thank you. Love you too. Ben. Thank it's you. Been great. Take care. All right. Bye, Ginger. Big as the ocean. 